Hey, we're, uh, we're resuming our journey through the New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, we've given this series of messages the title, Turning the World Upside Down, based on a statement made by some Jewish leaders uh, in the city of Thessalonica that's recorded in chapter 17, verse 6, uh, describing Paul and Silas as these men who have turned the world upside down. Before the Christmas season, we spent seven weeks in the first two chapters of Acts. If you missed any of those messages, I'd encourage you to go to mylpcoli.com forward slash media and view any of our past messages, including our recently concluded Christmas series, God Rest Ye Merry. This morning, we're, we're going to examine Acts 3, 1 to 10. But before we do, I want to draw your attention back to the very first two verses in this book. And there Luke, the author of Acts and also of the gospel that bears his name, said something kind of important, and I'd like to remind you of it as we move forward. He wrote in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus the man for whom he was writing these volumes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And notice that he doesn't say all that Jesus did and taught, but rather all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what I believe Luke wants his readers to understand, beginning with Theophilus and including all the rest of us who have the privilege of reading this amazing volume, is that Jesus' ascension to his throne in heaven uh, did not mark the end of his ministry. Uh, It didn't serve as a kind of a period at the end of a sentence, if you will, but rather a comma in the middle, an inflection point in his ongoing ministry and mission, which he is still carrying out today by his spirit through the church, through us. And some have therefore suggested that we ought to think of this book not primarily as the Acts of the Apostles, but rather as the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ through the apostles, or, if you will, the acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. We must think of it this way, or we'll fail to realize, fail to perceive what's really going on. Well, will you um, please stand with me, and uh, let's read together today's text. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. 
and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, in verse 1, we read of Peter and John making a devoted ascent. It's Acts 3.1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It's kind of an awkward phrase, uh, I understand. But I want you to understand something of what's happening here. An ascent, because Peter and John were going up to the temple geographically from anywhere and everywhere in Israel. Uh, visitors and pilgrims have to ascend to the city of Jerusalem. They have to go up to get there. And then having arrived in the city, the trajectory to the temple mount itself was again upward. So the whole journey to the temple was an upward journey from wherever you happened to be. And devoted because of the reason that they were going. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. And this should remind us that the first Christians were Jews, and they continued to devote themselves to the prayers. Belief in Jesus as the Messiah hadn't made functional Gentiles out of them. Uh, On the contrary, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah had come and he had fulfilled their Judaism. They, they understood the perfect continuity and being followers of Jesus in whom they'd come to believe as the promised Messiah and, and, to, and continuing in the synagogue and the temple. In fact, to Acts 2.46 says that the daily life of the first Christian church of Jerusalem alternated between gatherings in the temple and in their own homes. Judaism, as you may know, and I think we observed this earlier in this series, prescribed three scheduled times of prayer. Each day, the morning hour, the afternoon hour, and then the evening hour, which coincided with sunset. So Peter and John were on their way up to the temple at the afternoon hour, which was the ninth hour. The Jewish day began at 6 a.m., So the ninth hour is 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon. In verse 2, they encountered what was for a lame man and those who cared for him a daily approach. A daily approach. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Well, let's consider for a moment what we know about this man. You say, well, how can we know much about him at all? We can see some very clear things in just this verse, and then in chapter 4, verse 22, we, we learn more. But we're confronted first with the reality that this man had been lame from birth. Just think about that, lame from birth. Chapter 4, verse 22 tells us that he was over 40 years old. So let's get clear in our minds that in over 40 years, there had never been a day or even a moment in his life when he had walked. 
He had never taken a step, nor did he possess any hope of ever being able to walk on his own. And if he had ever dreamed of healing, that dream, that hope, had long since been extinguished. And because of his disability, he was therefore entirely dependent on others for his transportation. We're moving from point A to point B, and this reality defined the outline of his daily existence. All that could really be done in those days for a person with his disability was to take him to a public place where he could beg for alms. And Luke introduces us to this man, and Peter and John became aware of him as he was being carried to his regular spot at the beautiful gate for yet another day of asking alms of those entering the temple. You might ask the question in your mind, which gate was the beautiful gate? And the answer is we don't know exactly. Scholars have speculated and debated about three gates in particular without any real consensus. So I'm not going to spend any time on it here other than to note that the text leads us to infer that it was very, very close to the temple courts. And those who each day brought this man to beg were wise to have chosen a location where a large number of people would pass by each day. You know, another way of describing alms is to refer to them as gifts of mercy. Gifts of mercy. The Old Testament scriptures emphasize that God's people were to care for the needy among them. For example, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. In Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. And the New Testament certainly picks up that same theme. So the temple gate was surely the best place to receive gifts of mercy from faithful Jews entering the temple with the worship of God on their minds. Neither the lame man nor Peter and John converging at the same place at the same time that afternoon could ever have anticipated that they were about to experience what can only be described as a divine appointment. And the action begins in verse 3. The lame man did what he always did, what, what he'd always done, what he expected he would always do all day, every day, for the rest of his life. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. You know, there's, there's nothing in the text that would lead us to assume that the man expected anything different. There's nothing in the text that would lead us to assume that the man knew who Peter and John were. Some of our depictions of the apostles have them with these shining gold halos around their heads. And I want to assure you right now that they didn't walk around with halos around their heads. This man wouldn't have looked at them and said, hey, 
There's two of those halo guys. There's two apostles. Something unusual might happen. That, that wasn't at all in his mind. They were just two more worshipers coming up the stairs to the gate of the temple. Two more people who just might open their wallets and give them a coin. And then something remarkable began to unfold. Notice verse 4. It tells us that Peter and John directed their gaze at the man. Peter and John directed their gaze at the man. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And I, I want to ask, why, don't you? I mean, why? Why did they fix their gaze on this man? Why not any of the many others just like him who were surely present and begging at the gate? Why not any of the potentially hundreds of other worshipers who who had needs in their lives, who, who would have been filing through the gates at that particular hour? And we're not given the answer to that question. All that we may conclude is that this was indeed a divine appointment and something special was about to take place. Part of the reason I want you to see that is that the text tells us that Peter didn't just look at the man. He didn't just stare at him. Something much more intense is being expressed here. You see this phrase that's translated directed his gaze is in Greek just one word. One word, atenesis. Why is that important? Well, atenesis is the root from which our verb attend comes. There are a lot of uses for for the word attend. The one that applies here is the way it's used in the world of counseling and other helping disciplines. To attend means not merely to be physically present, but to be mentally and emotionally and spiritually present as well. It means to take pains, not just to listen to the words of a a counselee, but also to actively listen into their life with eyes and ears and mind and heart to listen empathetically in order not only to hear what they're saying, not only to hear what they're presenting, but also to feel what they feel, to, to understand their experiences and their needs. And it's no wonder then that in turn the Greek root for atonesis is literally to stretch or to strain. So when we read that Peter and John directed their gaze at this man, what we need to understand and what Luke is trying to tell us was happening in that moment is that they fixated on him completely and intensely, like a laser beam, like a hunting dog on point. They gave their full attention to this man, his his life, his circumstances, the needs that he presented outwardly as, as well as the needs he experienced inwardly. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Peter and John saw this man with the eyes of Christ. Now, now look what happens next. 
Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. Not the same word. It just means he looked back at them. But he looked at them in a fixed manner, expecting to receive something from them. They've directed their gaze at him. And now Peter tells him, look up here. Look at us. Look into our eyes. Give us your attention. So a connection was made. And and think about this. How often do we really make eye contact with people who are in severe need as we pass them by on the sidewalk or as we drive by them on a street corner. How many thousands of people had walked past this man in his nearly 40 years of begging without ever so much as looking him in the eye? How many had tossed him a coin without so much as a greeting? To to make eye contact expresses value. It says, I know that you exist. You have personal value. You, you matter to me. You matter to God. So he fixed his attention on them, Luke tells us, because he expected to receive something from them. Again, what did he expect? He expected to hear their coins ring as they dropped into his cup. It's all he'd ever come to expect. What he could never have imagined was what he was about to receive through them. It's important that we understand that it's through them, and it's from God himself. See, God knew this man existed. God knew his name. God knew the plans and purposes that he had for him. He knew every day of his life when there was yet not one of them. And by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, God had arranged this divine appointment and graciously allowed Peter and John to participate in the unfolding fulfillment of God's plans and purposes for this man's life. Now, here's what I want you to just not miss, because it's the heart of what I'm trying to express to you this morning, what I want you to understand before you leave that Peter gave to the man from his abundance and not from his lack. He gave to him from his abundance and not from his lack. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. I don't have what you expect to receive from me today. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I love the direct translation of Peter's first words in the Greek language. It's literally silver and gold, none there is to me. I like that. Silver and gold, none there is to me. You've been there ever? In the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson renders it, I don't have a nickel to my name. This verse is at the heart of what I want to convey this morning. Will you notice with me that, that Peter wasn't stopped or stymied by what he didn't have? He didn't say, I can't. He didn't make excuses. He didn't rationalize. He didn't let himself off the hook because of what he lacked, which at the moment was money. That didn't hold him back. 
from sharing what he did have, which was divine authority, divine power to heal, which had been personally delegated to him by the Lord Jesus himself. In Matthew 10, it's written that he, that is Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. See, Peter knew in the moment what the man needed most. It wasn't money. It was hope. It was healing. This man needed a new life. So in complete confidence in the power of God, Peter commanded the man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Again, a couple of observations. First of all, the power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. Will you stop and think about that with me for a moment? The power was Christ's, but the hand was Peter's. Note it well. The power was not Peter's. As one of his apostles, the Lord Jesus had delegated spiritual power and authority to Peter, but the power was never his. Instead, God graciously allowed Peter and John to be participants in the miracle that he himself would perform for this man. Peter extended his hand to the man and God healed him. Next, the man was healed. Note these words, immediately and completely. Immediately and completely. And leaping up, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Well, what does immediately mean? Does it mean after surgery and years of intensive physical therapy? Not in this case. Not at all. I looked up the word in the Greek language. It means instantaneously. On the spot, at that very moment, his complete healing was not the product of a protracted process. It was instead the manifestation of a momentary miracle by the power of God. Now just imagine, for the first time in his life, For the first time in his life, this man felt life and strength surging through his feet and his ankles, his legs. And at Peter's command, he did something he never thought he would do in his entire life. He leapt. He jumped up. And he stood And he walked. 
Now think about what's happening. Not only did God give strength to this man's joints and muscles and whatever whatever else is in there, those of you who understand anatomy and physiology better than I will have a more thorough understanding of that. But along with the strength, he also gave complete coordination. I was watching my grandson last night walk across the room. He's walking now. A little unstable, but he's walking. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about this message that we have to learn to walk. This man didn't have to learn to walk. What God did for him enabled him to walk immediately. He was walking. He was leaping. God put fortitude in his feet, a spring in his step, and praise on his lips. And for those who had eyes to see on that day, this was a token, an indicator of the arrival of the messianic age, which Isaiah the prophet had long before predicted. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Amen? It's recorded in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist in prison heard about what Jesus was doing, recognized what Jesus was doing as the deeds that the Scriptures said would be done by the promised Messiah. He sent word to Jesus through his disciples, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, here's another first then for this man. For the first time in his life, he didn't have a disability to disqualify him from entering the temple. Leviticus indicates that disabilities prevented the people from entering the temple. And in his uncleanness, he couldn't draw close to the presence of God. He he never could experience what those who passed by him every day were going into the temple to experience. He couldn't draw close to the presence of God. But on that day, God came to him. Leviticus 21.18 says, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, and the list goes on. How appropriate then that this man's first steps took him into the temple. And how appropriate that on that occasion of his first entrance at the hour of prayer, he went in walking and leaping and praising God. And notice verses 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
As I was preparing this message, I thought of a story that was shared by my friend Bill Mikesell, and uh, I want him to come and tell this story now to you. John Ledgerwood. I've known John for over 30 years, and uh, in May of last year, I was doing some work in north central Washington, and uh, while I was there, that's where John and his wife Audrey live, and uh, I picked up the phone and called, and in that conversation, Audrey invited me over to dinner. And since I was there for 90 days, a home cooked meal sounded really good. So I went and visited with John and Audrey, and while I was there, uh, John asked me, he said, Bill, tell me about your faith. How do you know? And we were sitting at the dinner table, and Audrey was in the other room preparing the meal, and I, all I could do was pray very quickly, Lord, Give me the words. And at that point, I just told John the story about what Christ had done in my life, my family, through my wife and myself, and uh, things that God had done. And at that time, as I was sharing with John, the tears were just squirting out of his eyes. Kind of like I want to do right now, but... The scripture that came to mind was this, found in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. After we had our meal, John said, let's go to the living room, and we did. We sat and visited. We talked about all things spiritual that John had questions about, and uh, I read from my Bible on my phone scriptures that I knew uh, John needed to hear. We talked about the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, and uh At a point, I just knew that I needed to ask John, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart? Would you like to commit your life to Christ? And John said, yes, I would. And I read to him Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John and I John and I prayed together, and John was a new creation. I read to John, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that says, Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And John said to me, Bill, this is so simple. On August 28th, I was asked by Audrey, to tell this story at John's service. Thank you, Jesus. Be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. Thank you. Love that story. Another divine appointment. And I love the fact that Bill said all I could do was pray. All I could do. He did all he, all that he could do. He shared his hope. Go with me to the Old Testament. Then I want to wrap this up. But go with me to the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Remember that... Uh, In Exodus 3, God meets Moses at the burning bush. Moses sees this bush that's burning but not being consumed. He's on on the backside of the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep in the land of Midian. He goes over and he, he has a divine encounter with God. And then God's... Out of that conversation, God commissions Moses to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. If you ever saw the Disney animated movie, Prince of Egypt, you know that Moses was raised in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But he was an Israelite. In Exodus 4, it begins, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. God says that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. They won't believe me, God. Who am I? You're not going to believe me. Exodus 4, just a few verses down, verses 10 to 17. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. 
But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I don't want to belabor this, but remember the question, what, what's in your hands, Moses? What you got? That's oh, just a piece of wood, just a stick. We go down three more verses in verse 20. We read, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And from that moment, the staff of Moses became the staff of God. At the time God encountered Moses from the burning bush in Midian on the backside of the wilderness, what Moses had in his hand at that moment was his Staff. In fact, every moment of every day as he shepherded the sheep, it was his principal tool because he was working as a shepherd. And with that staff, that stick, that piece of wood became the staff of God. And it remained in Moses' hand, and in Moses' hand, God performed mighty miracles on behalf of Israel. In your sermon notes form, you see Exodus chapter 17 referenced. Or seven, maybe. And, and that's just a list of the ways that Moses used that staff. But never again in an entire book of Exodus is it ever referenced, is it ever called the staff of Moses. It was in his hand, but it was the staff of God. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So let me ask this more ask you this morning, what's what's in your hand? You might say, Well, right now, Pastor, it's a pen and a Bible and a cup of coffee. So you have three hands. What's in your hand? In the day to day it may be a hammer and a wrench and a screwdriver. Might be measuring spoons and cups, a whisk and a spatula. You might have a guitar in your hands or a keyboard at your fingertips. You might have smartphones or computers or other electronic equipment in your hands every day. You might push a shovel, ride a lawnmower, wield a weed whacker. Perhaps you push a pen all day. Perhaps God's put a generous financial portfolio in your hand. Whatever that thing is or those things are, God has put them in your hands because he intends to use them to accomplish his purposes in the lives of others through you. Through you. The Lord, they won't believe me. But Lord, I'm not eloquent. Send somebody else. 
See, unless we understand this principle, we'll always be like Moses, comparing ourselves to others and saying, I can't. I heard someone say recently, success comes in cans. You'll never find it in cans. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So remember the source. In the kingdom of God, our can, our can do, if you will, doesn't come from mere positive thinking or the philosophy of human potential. It comes from God and God alone. The power is always his. It never stops being his. It's only as we take what's in our hands and throw it down, releasing it to God for his purposes and allowing him to to infuse it with his power that we discover not what we can accomplish, but what he can accomplish through us. Let me just share four principles for ministry and then I'm done. First of all, allow God to interrupt your schedule. Allow God to interrupt your schedule. So many divine appointments, so many opportunities for effective ministry present themselves when you're on your way to somewhere or something else. I've I've just found that to be so true. It's axiomatic. God doesn't need your permission to interrupt your schedule, but he needs your willingness to accept his agenda for your moments and your days. So be alert to divine appointments. Secondly, go together. Go together. Here are Peter and John, both of them apostles, but each of them a very different personality. From the scriptures we know, Peter is bold and brash, outspoken and impulsive. But we also know John is the apostle of love, sensitive, kind, encouraging. And together they had obviously become not only partners in the gospel, but good friends. They went to the temple together that day. And that's the way God designed the body of Christ, the church, to be. One body, many members, each with differing personalities, gifts, talents, to complement each other, to strengthen each other, to encourage each other. There's not a single one of us that is designed or intended to serve God alone. God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. To Adam, he gave Eve. To Moses, he gave Aaron. To David, he gave Jonathan. To Paul, he gave Barnabas. To Timothy, he gave Paul. We're we're better together. We're more effective when we minister cooperatively with each other, alongside each other. Whatever you're doing in ministry, Bring at least one other person alongside you. Value them highly. Combine your gifts and talents with theirs for greater impact. Third, ask God to help you see who he wants you to see. It occurred to me as I was preparing this message that that principle applies to us here at LifePoint. We we need to ask God to, to help us really see this neighborhood that we're in this new location, this new community and their needs outward and inward. 
Peter and John had walked those steps to the beautiful gate. We should assume on countless occasions and on each occasion for most or not all of their lives, that same same lame man must have been there. Probably wearing the same clothes. Just a constant fixture, a common sight in the landscape. Why Peter fixed his gaze on that man on that day to those ends, I cannot explain, but God can. God knew what he wanted Peter and John to see that day. So ask God to enable you to see with the eyes of his spirit, to help you see what he wants you to see, and then get ready. Because you're going to see things and people and needs that may have been in plain view for a good long time. But in order to see them, your perspective had to be radically changed by the Spirit of God. Finally, serve with what God has put in your hand. Serve with what God has put in your hand. Following our Christmas Eve service a couple of weeks ago, one of our volunteers kindly complimented me on the message that evening. It was a simple message that drew seven principles or seven simple observations about Christmas from two verses in Galatians. And he smiled at me and said, that was amazing. I could never do that. What occurred to me in that moment as I looked at him, this man whom I love and respect, was, was that he also possesses an entire set of gifts and skills very different from mine. And he has innate abilities that, that I'll never have to do things that I will never be able to do, at least not at the level that he does them. And I've seen him use those abilities over and over again to serve and to bless others. See, simply put, God has put things in that man's hands that he hasn't put in mine. So I said to him, neither can I do what you do. You see, together we're, we're better. And God intends both of us, each of us, all of us, to serve not with what he's put in the hands of others so that we would compare ourselves, but with what he himself has put in our hands. Capital One Visa asks, what's in your wallet? God asks, what's that there in your hand? And the things that he has put in your hand are the things he intends to use. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your work in the life of that lame man, the miracle that you performed in his body. We we thank you for bringing him intensively to the attention of Peter and John that day. And thank you that this story has been passed down to us 2,000 years later that we would learn that the things that you put into our hands and the, the moments of our days you intend to use in ways that we could never even begin to imagine. Lord, in this new year, would you remind us daily with the question, what's in your hand? How can we make a difference by simply surrendering, submitting, rendering, 
that thing, those things to you. That you would use us, not because we are powerful, but because you are. Not because because we're worthy, but because you've chosen us. You've graciously chosen to take up residence in our lives and to minister through us. What what an amazing God you are. Lord, help us to come to know you better in this season, this year, and to serve you more. In Jesus' name, amen.